Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. I always love when the children walk through the aisles with palm branches. So today, I want to talk about the the coming King. As we look at Palm Sunday, I just wanted to remind us why we celebrate this day, okay? How important it is, and and how it should shape our faith. So the, the first thing, that as we look into this passage, I want you to know that Jesus is the coming King. Jesus is the messianic king that we have been waiting for, that all God's people have been waiting for. Jesus is him. In fact, the Bible is a story. And at the center of that story, it's all about kingship. All about kingship. If you go all the way back to the garden, in the garden there was a king. And the king walked with his subjects. And the king loved his subjects. And the subjects, Adam and Eve, lived in submission to their king. But one day, they thought to themselves, you know, I could be a better king than he is. And so, Adam and Eve rebelled against their great king. And in rebelling against their king, the fall happened. See, what they didn't realize is that they... Adam and Eve, and in fact all humanity, have a throne in their hearts. You and I have a throne in our hearts, and that throne is deserving of one, the name above all names, and Him alone to sit enthroned in that heart, but there's a constant battle in us sitting there. The constant battle in our hearts is that who's going to sit on that throne today? What's going to sit on that throne today? And mankind, after the fall, decided to serve lesser kings. In Egypt, there were the gods of Egypt. And then there was the golden calf that they served when Moses was up on the mountain and and tarried a little too long up there. They said, create a god for us. Make a king because we need a king. We need somebody to lead us. And then there were idols in the Old Testament. The prophets came and they prophesied against idolatry. There were possessions Success in our day, many idols, many kings that we ask to sit on the throne of our hearts. And the problem is, all of these lesser kings turn out to be tyrants. They turn out to be tyrants. Give them an inch and they'll take you a mile. Right? Are you with me? Have you ever been in the place where sin has taken you farther than you wanted to go? You give it an inch. You give it a foothold, and it's moving in, and it's bringing its friends, isn't it? I heard the statement, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. Sin will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And sin will cost you far more than you could ever pay. 
God's people have been waiting on a good king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I think we've got it up here on the screen, the people of Israel now come into the promised land and they have a prophet named Samuel and they gather together. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 and 5, all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old. Your sons, they don't walk in in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now what a shame this, this passage is. What a shame. This, this God who has led them out of Egypt, has led them into the promised land, has divided the promised land, conquered all of the other kingdoms inside the promised land, and given to Israel the inheritance of the promised land. Now those people who have witnessed God's kingdom coming say hey we want a king like all the other nations and in first samuel chapter 8 verse 7 the lord said to samuel obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you for they have not rejected you samuel but who have they rejected but they have rejected me from being king over them we have been created with a throne in our heart and there's one and one alone who deserves to sit on it and it's god and after that God said, I'll give you kings. If kings is what you want, I'll give you kings. First one, Saul. Was he a good king? Nope. He looked the part, but he didn't have the heart. The second one, David. Was David a perfect king? No. But did he have a heart after God's own heart? Yes. He fell into sin, but repented, and God used him. His son Solomon the wisest man in all the earth in all of in his younger days in his latter days was he a wise man no that wisdom wasted away a thousand women now i don't know if if you could imagine having uh, i think it was 300 wives and 700 concubines now i just can't i can't make one of them happy right can you just imagine not very wise solomon kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, began to treat the people poorly, rebel against the Lord, and walk away from their king. But there was still a promised king yet to come. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God promises to David a king. A king who will come. And this is what it says. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, you're going to die soon. And when you die, he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. Now, who was David's son? Solomon. Now, is he talking about Solomon right here? Let me show you why he's not. He shall build a house for my name. Now, that does sound like Solomon, right? But he says, I will establish his throne or the throne of his kingdom forever. Let me ask you a question. Was Solomon's throne forever? No. His kingdom came to an end. Who would it be? He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God promises a king in the line of David who's going to come one day. And he's going to establish his kingdom forever. And this one will build a house for God. And it might not be a house of sticks and stones, a physical house that you enter, but it's going to be a spiritual house with spiritual stones. And he's going to set his name there forever. 
So, in our text, we see Jesus come in and he begins to fulfill these prophecies of old about the coming king. So, look, let's look at our text. He says, he says right here in, in verse 1, They came near to Jerusalem, came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and then he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village in front, and you'll find a donkey tied with a colt on her. And the, the other Gospels will say that a colt that's never been ridden before. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them. So I want you to imagine this. He comes into a village just outside of the, the city of Jerusalem. He's looking down a hill. I'll show you pictures in a minute. But he's looking down a hill into Jerusalem. And he begins to say, go to the village in front of you. Find a colt that no one's ever ridden and bring it to me. And right here, verse 5, or verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying. Now he quotes Zechariah 9, and I want to read it to you. I want to show it to you on the screen. Zechariah 9. It only quotes part of the verse, 9, 9. But I want you to see 9, 10, and 11. This is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous. And having salvation is he. This one, this king that's going to come to you, he is righteous. Have all the other kings been righteous? Have any of the other kings been righteous? No. All the other kings have sought to bring about salvation for the people of Israel. Have they brought about lasting salvation for the people? No, but this one, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Listen to what it says. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. Who are the nations? The Gentiles. What? This king is not only going to be righteous and bring salvation. And he's going to get the war horse out of Jerusalem. But he's going to speak peace. He's going to make a covenant of peace with people. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you. The blood of my covenant with you. Does that sound like the Lord's Supper? This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for you. He says, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set the prisoners free from the waterless pit. Isn't that good news? That's the, the gospel according to Zechariah right there. 500 plus years before Jesus is fulfilling this very passage, he says it. Now, I've got a couple pictures for you. I don't know how well you can see that, but on this day, in Matthew 21, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and He comes to the Mount of Olives and looks over Jerusalem. And, and right now, you in the picture, just imagine with me that you're standing here on the Mount of Olives, and you're looking down, you see all the trees in the middle. That's the Kidron Valley, and that is the Garden of Gethsemane. And so, looking down, and you see that big, great wall there, right before the gold dome. That big great wall is the wall of the city and specifically the wall of the temple. And about where that, just to the right of where that gold dome sits, 
you see maybe four little arches there. And that is the place where the, the temple, the holy place in the holy of holies would have sat. And so Jesus would have come down the road from the Mount of Olives down through the Garden of Gethsemane, through the Kidron Valley, and up the Temple Mount. And he tells his disciples, you know, I've been walking for these three years, but I'm not going to walk the last two miles. I'm going to ride. Can you imagine the disciples going, finally, he's coming, the king. He's going to get find a horse, get a big old horse, and let's ride this thing in, right? Can you imagine? He says, but I'm not going to ride a horse. I want that right there. You mean the donkey? No, her colt. You're going to do what? Why would you ride that? Right? That's no noble steed. Why? Because Zechariah says he's going to cut off the war horse. The king's not coming on a war horse. He's coming on a, a, a donkey's colt. Never been ridden before. Now, I just, just, just use your holy imagination with me. A donkey, a colt, never been ridden before, okay? When Jesus climbs on the back of this donkey that's never been ridden before, how's that going to go? If it was you or me, how would that go? Imagine you, you, have you ever seen a wild horse somewhere? What would happen if you walked up to that wild horse and said, horse, I'm going to ride you right now. You're going to climb on the back of that horse, and that horse is going to say, where to, sir? No. Bucking, neighing, snorting, stomping, you name it, and where are you going to end up? On your back, on the ground, right? Why? Because before you can ride an animal, you've got to break an animal. You've got to break an animal. You've got to tame an animal. It's the same with other animals. Dogs, cats, they got to be trained before they're broken or useful or domesticated or whatever. And, and some of our animals have trained us really well, right? You, before you can domesticate or train or tame an animal, you have to break it and you have to break them of their nature. Now, there's a, an old evangelist named George Whitfield, and he says, Why do animals naturally run from us? Why do they naturally bark at us? He says, It's, it's because sin, and because they know that we have a quarrel with their master. But here Jesus is climbing on the back of a, a donkey that's never been ridden before, riding this unridden colt through a crowd of people who are yelling and praising, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and screaming rebukes at him. How in the world is it that Jesus did that? Did, did he break the donkey? No, he did not. Jesus did not have to do, to do that. Jesus healed that donkey of its fear that day. I mean, just imagine that little donkey walking down the road of the triumphal entry. This is it right here. You see this? This is the very road. I'm sure it didn't look like that back in Jesus' day, but this is the road that Jesus would have walked down or ridden that donkey down. Crowds of people screaming and yelling and hollering, and Jesus is walking that or riding that donkey down that road, and that donkey is perfectly calm. It is calm. It is steady on the road. Why? Because it has Jesus in the saddle. 
Lean in here, church family. How much more would we be healed if we would let Jesus sit in the saddle? Jesus is the king. He is the prince of peace. Jesus, Jesus does, he comes to reign in your life, but he does not come to break you. He comes to heal you. Think about it. Think about it. When Jesus begins to rule in your life, all of the chaos around you, does that change? Nope. But the chaos inside of you does. Are you with me, church? Your circumstances don't change when Jesus reigns in your life, but the circumstances inside your heart do. He speaks peace in the middle of a storm. Order in the midst of chaos. Why? Because He is the Prince of Peace and He sits in the saddle of your life. And if you'll give Jesus the reins of your heart, He will be a gentle King to you. Humble and mounted on a, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He is not a tyrant. He is a gentle King who will come and restore you and heal you if you'll let Him. Have you ever wondered why so many of us have broken relationships? Why so many of us remain in a broken state? Something that's happened to us way back yonder in our past? Why so many marriages are broken? Why so many churches are broken? Why is that the case? Could it be because Jesus is not sitting in the saddle of each one of those? It's because we're afraid to give the reins to somebody else. We're just like Adam and Eve. We think to ourselves, you know, I'd make a better king than he would. Then they say, they say, look at verse 9. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Somebody tell me, what does Hosanna mean in Hebrew? Save now. Save us, we pray. Isn't it interesting? They're crying out to Jesus. He's riding a, a colt down the hill into Jerusalem. He, they're crying out, save us. Save us, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. Hosanna in the highest. Now, what's interesting is they're quoting directly out of Psalm 118. It's not up on the screen for you, but I'll read it to you really quickly. Psalm 118 says like this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in, a, in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless, bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the sacrifice to the altar. 
So what you see is them crying out, save us. Now question, what did they want this king to save them from? Rome. Rome. There's so many Romans around there. They are persecuting us Jews. They are, they are taxing us Jews. They are making life unbearable. Save us from Rome. Jesus says, I didn't come to save you from Rome. I came to save you from something different. So he rides down the hill through the Garden of Gethsemane where we'll visit later on in the week. And then he ascends up to the eastern gate called the Golden Gate and comes into the Temple Mount. In these two prophecies, he's the righteous king who brings salvation to those who receive him. And this king did not come to lord it over his subjects, but rather to die for them. He came to die for them. The righteous king dies for unrighteous subjects. Now, I want you to sit back and consider something for a minute. Your sin is so heinous and evil and wicked and bad that the king of kings had to die for you. But you are also so loved that the king of kings was willing to die for you. Isn't that good? Nobody forced Jesus on that cross. He says in John chapter 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. I do it of my own accord. And I'll take my life back up. Where does he go? Does he go to Herod's palace? Does he go to the praetorium? Where, where the, the Roman guards were? Kind of the, the Roman uh, place of judicial system? Is that where Jesus goes? No, he goes to the what? To the temple. To the temple. Look at verse 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Verse 13 says, He said to them, It's written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Now Mark 11 adds a house of prayer for the nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. What does he see? He comes into the temple, and in the court of the Gentiles, just outside of the temple wall, there is, there is a, a market going on. Now, from the outside, we might look at that and say, you know, these people have traveled a long way. They need a sacrifice to make. They, they need some help. Somebody needs to provide a, a sacrifice that would be rightly accepted for God, and if they're going to make a little bit of money on that, hey, that's good on them, right? But he says, no. What does he do? Turns over tables. The book of John says that he made a whip and drove them out of there. How does that Jesus fit into your theology? That Jesus would make a whip? Overturn tables? I just want a Jesus of love. He's a Jesus of wrath and he's a Jesus of love. All at the same time. And they are not contradictory statements. There was busyness in the temple. There was a lot of what looked like worship in the temple. But the busyness was not pleasing to God. There were folks who were using the sacrificial system for a profit. Rather 
or I should say at the expense of God's intended purpose and at the expense of people who deserve to be there. They were taking up the court of the Gentiles, the only place that the Gentiles could go to worship Yahweh, the one true God, and they were taking it up. And so what does Jesus do? He comes into the court of the Gentiles, he overturns tables, makes a whip, and drives them out of there. Now I know that you would never think that we could also use God for our purposes. But I want to ask you a question. What are you praying for? What is the content of your prayer list? What is the thing that you say, if I had that thing, if God would give me that thing, then I would be happy or content or satisfied or whatever. I would be, I would reach it when I had that. Let me tell you, that's your king. That's your idol. That's what you're actually serving. What do you go to church for? When you come to church, you say, I'm coming to church because I want community. I want friendship. I want X, Y, Z. Now, are those things bad things? No, those things are great things. But what we're doing is we're using something for a not intended purpose. I like this church because it sings the kind of songs that I want to sing. It has the kind of programs that I like. Last time I checked, church wasn't about any of us, was it? He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. I was talking to Pastor Ken yesterday, and, and, and church is the only organization that exists for those who are not yet a part of it. We do not exist for ourselves. We exist for those outside. Now we come together and we preach God's word and we worship together, but we do so for the sake of those who do not know him. We are discipled and we want to grow in Christ, but why are we discipled? Because we want to be equipped to go out so that we might tell people who do not yet know him. And these Jews in this day were taking away the Gentiles' place of worship. The only place that they could go. To worship Yahweh, the one true living God. They were filling it up with tables, and treasures, and offerings. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were what? They were indignant. It means angry. They were angry and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, and he quotes Psalm chapter 8 verse 2, have you never read? He said, I hear exactly what they're saying. Have you never read Psalm 8 verse 2, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Luke 19 40 follows up and he says, if these are silent, What's going to happen? The rocks are going to cry out. Creation knows who I am. And I'm not... It's interesting that Jesus didn't stop people from worshiping Him. Now, if He was not who He said He is, that would be blasphemy, right? But if He is who He says He is, He's the only one that deserves our worship. Now, let me tie this up 
what are the implications of Jesus' kingship? Okay? We, we need to see this. What are the implications? Now, most political leaders are either compassionate or powerful. They're compassionate, they have a heart for people, they want to do good, but they don't have the power to accomplish it. Some are powerful, yet they lack compassion. I know you can't imagine that in politics, right? But Jesus has the ability to be both powerful and compassionate. Perfectly compassionate and infinitely powerful. And aren't you thankful that in your life and in my life, that's how Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven. Our fathers are compassionate. Deities are powerful. And Jesus says, you need to pray because your father is both of those. He cares deeply for you while being the only one who can defeat your enemies. While being the only one who can calm your fears. While being the only one who can give you what you need most. And while being the only one who can love you despite you. Jesus must be Savior and Lord. Remember, I said there's no middle ground with Jesus. Some of us, we want to play the fence with Jesus. Jesus is a good person. He's a great prophet. He was a good teacher. Jesus, he's a nice guy. He's a great example. I love what Jesus stands for, but I don't believe that he's Lord. I don't believe that he's Savior. Now, I just want you to understand that you can't logically say that. Think about it. If Jesus is just a good teacher, yet he says that he is God in the flesh. Can you be a good teacher if you think you're God, but you're not? Nope. You know that makes you? A lunatic. Or a liar. He can't just be, you can't just have middle ground with Jesus. You can't ride the fence with Christ. You've either got to crown him as king or crucify him as a lunatic. There's no middle ground. Don't you remember what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? He says, I know your deeds. Oh, that you were either hot or cold. But because you're neither hot nor cold, but because you're lukewarm. I'll spit you out of my mouth. We can't be lukewarm with Christ. We can't. And so if you're lost out there, I'm talking to you. But if you're saved, you're a part of God's church, it's easy to become lukewarm, isn't it? Because the fire inside of our lives doesn't get stoked regularly enough, it's easy for us to become lukewarm. We can't play the middle ground with Jesus. He must be Savior and Lord, or He must be nothing at all. But He can't be a good teacher. Now, here's what I love about Jesus. Kings. Kings in this day had every right to come in and blow a trumpet, and you would be forced at this moment to bow the knee. Do you remember the book of Daniel? Book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to blow the trumpet, and you're going to bow and fall down and worship the great statue that we've set up. 
They have every right to do that as a king. Now, Jesus, he has that right, but I just need you to know he does not make use of that right yet. Yet. Jesus will not force you to bow your knee to him. He will not force you to serve him. He will not force you to love him. He will not force you to receive him as Savior and Lord. He will not force you. But he is the only king worthy of worship. He is the only king worthy of devoting your life to. And when you do worship him, you will find out that he is a good king, that he is humble and gentle, he is kind, and he will meet all your needs. The last implication is this king is coming back. Now, Mr. James, can you go back to my last, the first picture? First picture. Now, I don't know how well you can see this, but in the middle of that wall, that long wall, there's a gate, and that gate has been bricked up by those who currently uh, in, inhabit the Temple Mount. It's been bricked up. Why? Because they know that the prophecies say that Jesus, when he returns, he's coming through the eastern gate, that golden gate right there in the middle of the wall. Wish I had a pointer, I'd help point at it. So the same way that Jesus came, the same gate that he came through, guess what? He's coming back through. He will come again. And the scriptures tell us that he will, when he comes again, he will break the eastern sky. And let me tell you something, when Jesus comes back, there's no bricks and mortar that are going to keep him out of where he wants to be. Our king right now is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father until... He came first as a humble king, a gentle king, a savior king, a king who would die for his people, but he's coming back as a victorious king. He, he came into Jerusalem on a, a, a colt, on a foal of a donkey, but he's coming back on a white horse. And, and if you're not on the right side of King Jesus, let me tell you, it's not going to go well for you on that day. So. There are four reflection questions that I'm going to ask for us to leave up for a few minutes as we pray. Reflection questions that you might need to consider as we close our time. And here they are. Have you trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord or King? There are some of you in this room who haven't. You've been to church a long time. But you've never had a relationship with King Jesus. He's a king who dies to save. So trust him as Savior and Lord. Number two, what area of, you, of your life have you not surrendered to Jesus? Maybe there should be an S. What areas? Can I just be honest? All of us should have answers to this. I know I do. Three, what could Jesus ask you to do that you'd say no? Because that would be an area that number two is true. Four, what areas of your life are chaotic because Jesus isn't king or in the saddle? Remember, he comes to speak peace. Now, I don't mean that he's going to change all your circumstances. I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel here. It says that Jesus' seven steps to make your life better. No, 
But when he's the king, even in the middle of the circumstances that you're going through, you'll have peace. You will be calm in the middle of the storm if Jesus is in the saddle. Sometimes we don't experience the peace of God because we haven't, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our request be made known to him. We haven't cast our anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for us. So would you mind standing with me? As we respond to the Lord, I'll leave those up there for a moment. And maybe you just need to come and you need to kneel at the altar. Brad, last week, Pastor Brad asked you to lay your yes on the altar. And some of us, we might realize that I haven't actually laid my yes because I got some things, places, areas of my life where he's not king. So let's come. Let's surrender. And maybe today you need to be saved. Today's the day of salvation. Would you pray with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're out there and you're lost today, you, you, you don't know if your sins are forgiven. You don't know if God loves you. You don't know where you're going to spend eternity. Maybe today you need to give your heart to Jesus. And if you're out there, you could pray a simple prayer like this. God, I know I have sinned against you. I know my sins deserve an eternal punishment. But I believe that Jesus is the king who died for sinners. Today, I, I want to exchange my sin for his righteousness. And I want to be saved. And I want to make you king to the best of my ability. In Jesus' name. If you've just prayed that, just know that in a miraculous way, God has just saved you. If you prayed that from your heart, God has saved you. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we need you to come and show us by your Holy Spirit the places that we have not surrendered to you. The areas of our life where we don't experience the peace of King Jesus areas of our life that if you would ask us, we'd say no. We need to surrender them to you that you might be King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us to worship you. Come thou fount, come thou king. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. If you need to respond, you respond.